0: Welcome to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, and works of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe. The intro music for this podcast is Come Rest in This Bosom, said to be Edgar Allan Poe's favorite song. This is the 25th episode of Celebrate Poe, and from what I understand, the 25th is a milestone for any new podcast. And uh, we've just been around for about two months. The ghost of Mr. Poe will be absent for the next three episodes, but definitely be back to talk about his education in England as well as Romantic literature. The English Romantics were a highly imaginative and uh, highly imaginative group, and that's putting it nicely. Mr. Poe was one of the American Romantic writers. In fact, there is an excellent scholarly journal about Edgar Allan Poe called Poe Studies slash Dark Romanticism, with such articles as Poe and the Perfectibility of Man and The Sexual Abyss. But back to Stanton, Virginia... I would like to do one of my podcasts where I compare the stories of two often dissimilar individuals. Uh, that was my original plan. Uh, past episodes like that have uh, compared the uh, Marquis Laf- Lafayette and James Lafayette, as well as uh, Gilbert Hunt, a hero of the Richmond Fire, and Father Michael Judge, a, a hero of 9-11. In this episode and the next, I would like to talk about two men born in Stanton. One a president, and in the next episode, a geneticist. I originally planned to talk about both individuals in one podcast, but you know what they say about plans, the best laid plans of mice and men off go astray it would be impossible to even begin to cover the lives of these two men from Stanton in one episode. So I'm going to devote the entire episode today to Woodrow Wilson, and then the next episode to another great individual from Stanton, Dr. Francis Collins. Now, most people in my hometown would say that uh, the most notable person to come out of Stanton was Woodrow Wilson. After all, he was president of the United States during the difficult times of World War I. Woodrow Wilson is often rated as one of our best presidents. He is given high marks by both liberals and conservatives. And while there's no question about him being a great president, some scholars claim he did have racial views that would be highly unacceptable today. And uh, while I don't agree with his uh, bigoted opinions, I certainly do understand that they were a product of the times. Of course, uh, Woodrow Wilson became president long after Poe died, but they did have somewhat of a historical connection in that they were both members of the prestigious Jefferson Society during their respective times at the University of Virginia. Poe and Wilson also shared the fact that their lives were greatly affected by a pestilence or pandemic. In Poe's immediate case, a deadly strain of tuberculosis, and in Woodrow Wilson's case, a deadly strain of influenza. But first, Wilson's connection to Stanton. Woodrow Wilson was the third child and first son of a Reverend Joseph Ruggles Wilson, Minister of Stanton's leading church at that time, First Presbyterian Church. He was born in the house that the uh, Presbyterian Church provides for a minister, called a manse. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, Wilson's home was uh, one of the newest and uh, finest homes in the city. And today, it's a major tourist attraction in Stanton. The birthplace also houses the Woodrow Wilson Library. Wilson later attended Davidson College in North Carolina, but transferred to the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University. He became a lawyer and practiced law in Georgia, but became disenchanted with the day-to-day procedural aspects. In 1883, he obtained a doctorate degree from Johns Hopkins University, then a new graduate university in Baltimore. He was elected by the Princeton University Board of Trustees uh, to the chair of political economy and eventually became the president of Princeton University. But after becoming disenchanted with his job, he began considering a run for political office. He was supported by several leaders who considered his inexperience in politics actually a genuine asset. The Democrats had lost several of the past elections, and it was felt that the public was looking for a new face. To be honest, some of the most influential politicians at the time felt that Wilson's inexperience would make him easier to control, to do their bidding. Wilson was elected governor of New Jersey and was considered a rising star in the progressive movement. In his bid for president, he won two-thirds of the vote, on the convention's 46th ballot, so he really wasn't doing too well. But he won the election and was nominated without opposition in his successful bid for a second term. Now, in the midst of President Wilson's second term, a pandemic was beginning that would eventually kill more people than all of World War One. In the book, A Very, Very Dreadful, The Influenza Pandemic of 1918, Albert Marion writes that many historians believe the pandemic began when migrating birds flew south from Canada like they had done for ages. A duck probably dropped a virus-tainted feces into a pig wallow near Fort Riley, Kansas. Then most likely a farmer carrying a human variety of the virus passed it on to other people. This may explain why recruits at the nearby military station reported sick on March the 11th, ten days before the German offensive began in France. Then when troops from Fort Riley moved to other camps for additional training or joined units bound for France, they brought the infection with them. That's the story that I've heard the most regarding the method of origin for the influenza of 1918. And still other historians believe uh, that it was just a coincidence that the first wave of the pandemic struck just as American troops arrived. They point to the village of Etaples in France as the most likely place of origin. Etaples is located on the edge of vast salt marshes, stop-off places favored by flocks of birds on their way to their nesting sites in Africa. Another factor was that there were many farms nearby, with huge numbers of pigs, ducks, geese, and chickens. At Etaplay, the British Army had the largest base it had ever built on foreign soil. A railway link served the base's 24 hospitals, all located near each other. The base also had a prisoner of war compound and camps for fresh troops bound for the front and men returning from the trenches for rest, as well as medical treatment. It was impossible to keep A to Play clean. Uh, with A to Play, you have an area that was filled with men forced to live in canvas tents or flimsy wooden barracks in all seasons. The military camp was damp, depressing, and smelly. These were ripe conditions for the spread of a deadly pandemic. English poet Wilfred Owens wrote his mother that uh, the camp seemed neither France nor England, but a kind of cage where beasts are kept days before the slaughter. The troops had a strange look about them. Owen noted that it was not despair or terror, it was more... Terrible than terror, for it was a blindfold look, and without expression, like a dead rabbit's. The camp housed more than 100,000 men, a large proportion of them ill and infectious. Talk about a super-spreader environment. Now, even with all the horrors of COVID-19 we have today and the effects on our lives, it is hard for us to completely understand the scale of the 1918 influenza, also referred to as the Spanish flu. Influenza is often called the Spanish flu not because Spain had anything to do with the disease. It was just that the governments of other countries wanted to minimize the disease. Sound familiar? And because Spain was neutral during World War I, uh, it didn't have wartime censorship on its newspapers. It went ahead and reported on the disease's existence. The other newspapers were not allowed to report on anything that might be perceived as hurting the war effort of World War I, even though more people, as I said, died from influenza than the war itself. After the first case was reported in Kansas and quickly killed thousands of people, reported cases of influenza fell off during the summer of 1918, and I'm going to refer to the disease as influenza here on out, not Spanish flu. It was assumed by many that the disease had run its course, but it was only the calm before the storm. Sometime in the fall, a mutated strain of the virus emerged that had the power to kill a perfectly healthy young individual within 24 hours of showing any infection. Now, that's scary. That fall, military ships departed the English port city of Plymouth, carrying troops unknowingly infected with this new, far deadlier strain of the Spanish flu. Or again, I should say, influenza. As these ships arrived in such places as France and Boston, the second wave of the global pandemic began. John Barry in The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, points out that the rapid movement of soldiers around the globe was one of the main reasons the disease was so widely spread. If a soldier became ill on a crowded ship, there was little that anyone could do. The death rate from the Spanish flu, or influenza, was almost 200,000 in just the United States for November 1918. The nature of the strain of this disease uh, resulted in high numbers of deaths in not just the very young and very old, but especially the young and middle-aged, affecting most the very people who were living in close quarters in the military. Young, previously healthy young men were suffering signs of blistering fevers, nasal hemorrhaging, and pneumonia. Some patients would even drown in their own fluid-filled lungs. British military doctors conducting autopsies on soldiers killed by the second wave of the virus described the damage to the lungs as similar to that caused by chemical warfare. The public health response to the crisis was greatly hampered by a severe nursing shortage because thousands of nurses had been sent to military camps and the front lines. A British government official named Arthur Newsham said that the relentless needs of warfare justified incurring the risk of spreading infection and encouraged Britons to simply carry on during the pandemic. By December 1918, the second wave of the disease passed, and a third wave was found in Australia the next month. This wave worked its way back to Europe and the United States. The mortality rate of the third wave was just as high as the second wave, but by this time the war had ended, and that removed the conditions that allowed the pandemic to spread so far and so quickly in the first place. Millions of people died from the third wave, but that paled in comparison to the gigantic losses in the second wave. Now, back in the United States, President Wilson began coughing uncontrollably on the night of April the 3rd. His condition got so bad that his personal doctor, Kerry Grayson, thought that Wilson might have been poisoned. Dr. Grayson later described the long night he spent with President Wilson as one of the worst through which I have ever passed. I was able to control the spasms of coughing, but his condition looked very, very serious. In Woodrow Wilson, a biography by John Milton Cooper, the author points out that the illness was bad enough, but the timing couldn't be worse. Ordinarily a very strong-willed and idealistic person who was determined to make his ideas a reality, President Wilson felt extremely weak and without his usual energy. He was left bedridden in the middle of the most important negotiations of his life, the Paris Peace Conference to end World War I. President Wilson had come to the negotiations with his 14-point strategy for achieving world peace a strategy that was quite visionary and would have made the world a better place. The President's strategy called for ambitious, open, and transparent peace treaties, as well as disarmament. And most importantly was the creation of a General Association of Nations, later called the League of Nations, and that was to actively prevent all future wars. But uh, part... Parts of uh, Wilson's post-war plans were strongly opposed by the other chief powers at the Paris Peace Conference, namely France and Great Britain. The French Prime Minister demanded billions in reparation for the huge loss of French lives by the Germans, as well as the monumental loss of property. Germany, though, was in a really bad situation. President Wilson wanted to spare Germany such painful humiliation and focus on building up the League of Nations. So there were definite disagreements on how the nations should proceed. Then Wilson became ill and was in bed for five days with a 103-degree fever. His doctor lied to the press and said that it was nothing more than a bad cold. Now, a major problem with the pandemic of 1918 was that even if you survived the initial symptoms and burning fever, you still might experience neurological symptoms. John Barry writes that victims describe manifestations, psychotic delusions, and even visions that resulted from damage to the nervous system. He goes on to say that the most comprehensive study of the 1918 pandemic noted how common neurological disorders were. They were second only to the lung. It appears that Wilson did suffer from similar neurological problems during his problems with the flu at the Paris Peace Conference. He became paranoid, says Barry. Wilson thought that the French uh, had spies all around him. He was bizarrely obsessed with his furniture and his automobiles, and pretty much everyone around him noted it. Wilson's chief usher late, wrote, uh, wrote later that something queer was happening in the president's mind, and that one thing is certain, he was never the same after this little spell of sickness. The British Prime Minister, Lloyd George, came to visit Wilson during his recuperation at the Hôtel de Prince Murat and labeled Wilson's condition a nervous and spiritual breakdown in the middle of the heated Paris negotiations. When Wilson was finally well enough to rejoin the conference, he didn't even look like the man who had previously fought so hard for his principles. The flu had weakened both his body and his mind, and Wilson simply didn't have the strength or the will to stand his ground. Now, prior to his illness, Wilson had been adamant, insisting on the 14 points and self-determination. All of a sudden, Wilson caved in on on all 14 points, except the League of Nations. For Wilson's negotiation team in Paris and his supporters back home, the Treaty of Versailles signed in June 1919 was a betrayal of everything Wilson had stood for— and set the stage for more conflict and death on European soil. Now William Bullitt, an assistant to the Department of State and a loyal Wilson attaché at the Paris negotiations, immediately offered his resignation. I was one of the millions who trusted confidently and implicitly in your leadership and believed that you would take nothing less than a permanent peace based on unselfish and unbiased justice, wrote Bullitt. But our government has consented now to deliver the suffering peoples of the world to new oppressions, subjections, dismemberments, and a new century of war. Historians agree that one of the chief causes of the rise of Adolf Hitler's Nazi party was the humiliation and economic desperation suffered by the German people during the Treaty of Versailles. Many scholars believe that instead of safeguarding the world from future wars, the Treaty of Versailles helped pave the road to World War II a case can be made that president wilson's illness played a significant and disruptive role in the paris peace negotiations. berry said it certainly had a tremendous impact, bad decisions that eventually led to the death of millions of people. returning to the united states, things only got worse for wilson. first, Congress rejected American participation in the League of Nations, the last survey, a surviving remnant of the 14 points, and then Wilson suffered a debilitating stroke from which he never fully recovered. Now, I would like to quote the comedian Trevor Noah in his video comparing COVID 19 to influenza. If you don't know, now you know, segment of the daily social distancing show. It might seem a bit odd uh, to use uh, The Daily Show and Trevor Noah uh, as uh, sources for a largely historical podcast, Uh, but um, Noah's facts are right on the money. Besides being very funny, he appears to be wicked smart, and I'm sure he has fact checkers on his staff to double-check any historical information. Anyway, the pandemic of 1918 and the current pandemic have many similarities— both have affected millions internationally but the real similarity between these two pandemics is how in this country is how Americans have or have not responded the presidents during both eras initially ignored the pandemic and said it would go away mr trump said it's going to disappear one day maybe in the spring it will just disappear Neither took an active role in letting people know how to really protect themselves. Despite numerous warnings, President Wilson encouraged crowds and told mayors and governors to go ahead and have military parades. Trevor Noah notes that uh, in both 1918 as well as today, the lack of leadership led to the spread of misinformation. In uh, Mr. Trump's case, uh, there have been the conspiracies such as Uh, the one that uh, coronavirus was uh, man-made. Notice how he constantly refers to it as a China virus, as though a virus could have a nationality. In President Wilson's case, a conspiracy theory spread that said Germany had originated the virus. In fact, a conspiracy theory began that Bayer, which was a German-owned company at the time, had infected their aspirin and was spreading the disease. There was no shortage of phony cures. During President Wilson's administration, Vic's Rub even advertised itself as a remedy for influenza, claiming that it stimulated the mucous membrane to throw off the germs. Not that much different from advocating interjecting the body with disinfectant, except interjecting bleach is a lot more deadly. Even back in 1918, scientists knew that masks clearly reduced and even prevented the spread of the virus. There were mask mandates, and far too many people ignored them, just like today. Let me conclude by simply saying that the past has shown us, as if it needed to be illustrated, that uh, we need to act as a unified people and avoid misinformation to control and eradicate a pandemic. Staying alive and refraining from spreading a deadly virus is not a political act. It's the right thing to do. Now, sources include Society Ties, A History of the Jefferson Society and Student Life at the University of Virginia by Thomas L. Howard III and Owen W. Gallagher, Woodrow Wilson, A Biography by John Milton Cooper, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History by John Barry, and Trevor Noah in the video of COVID-19 versus the Spanish Flu. If you don't know, now you know segment of the daily social distancing show. And please remember to visit the podcast website at celebratepo.buzzsprout.com for show notes as well as a transcript of this episode. And check out the cover art for this episode, a photo of President Woodrow Wilson. Thanks for listening to Celebrate Poe, and join us for our next episode regarding Stanton as the podcast looks at a geneticist from Stanton who just might possibly be one of the greatest Americans alive.